read the comics all the while. Rock and roll was being born. Marijuana we would scorn. So down on the corner, the national pastime went on trial. We're talking baseball. Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball. The man and Bobby Feller, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque. Welcome back to, to Real Voices of the Game Productions. I'm Dave D'Agostino. I'm joined by my co-host, Hall of Famer, legendary broadcaster and analyst, and the star of this show, Cots Corner. Uh, Jim, welcome back to the show today. We had a great first episode with you. And before we get going on this special tribute show today to one of your dear friends, a tremendous player and also a tremendous broadcaster. I want to just thank our audience for supporting our show. We've eclipsed the 12,000 subscriber mark. We're at 12,300 as of today. Continue to subscribe, like, and don't forget to download. Otherwise, we don't get credit for it. And of course, listen in between. That makes sure that our great hosts here continue to do the job for you and build a better baseball IQ for our baseball community. Also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I've been doing a Facebook post every morning answering questions from our audience. And we're getting now is 50 to 60 questions the first week. Now we're getting upwards in the neighborhood of 150 to 200. And what's great is that everybody feels like it's resonating with them. And I, and I love that about our group. So with that being said, Jim, welcome back to the show. You had a great first episode last week, and I'm excited to get going with this one this week. Well, thanks very much, Dave. I, I like the intro music because I used to spend a lot of time with Terry Cashman in uh in new york you know and he's the one that wrote uh wrote those baseball songs and great uh, baseball fan we used to play a lot of trivia together and of course today uh centering on my my good friend uh and teammate for a few years in philadelphia uh it pains me to say the late great tim mccarver what a unique person and uh and it's just such an honor to talk about him as a person a player a teammate and a broadcaster. Uh, Tim and I have a, a mutual friend, Jack McAleese, who's a retired attorney in Philadelphia. Jack's known Tim actually longer than I have. He met him in the early 70s. Tim and I first met in 1976 when I was a member of the Phillies. But the three words that always came out when we brought Tim's name up, both of us, is that he is the most honest trustworthy and loyal friend a person could have. His honesty was unparalleled, a person of great integrity, and I was just so honored to be his friend. I think a lot of people in the general baseball world maybe don't realize how close Tim and I were, but it was I'm so honored to get the text I got from TV producers and other people in that business and baseball in general that really knew how uh, we were like brothers and and I was honored, though it's uh, it's not a pleasant task, but when I heard Tim had gone into hospice care and his daughter Kathy had called me, I immediately jumped on a plane and went to Memphis. And as divine intervention would have it, I was in his room with a hospice nurse when I saw Tim uh, take his last breath. So it's a bittersweet experience to, to think here's a, a fellow that I met. We came from such different backgrounds. Uh, 47 years ago, and there I'm with him right at the end. A bittersweet experience, but there's no place I would have rather been 
than at the at his side when uh, when that happened. And Dave, I mentioned our our varied backgrounds. You know, I grew up as uh, you would call me a country bumpkin. You know, in a small town in Southwest Michigan, idyllic childhood. I thought every kid in America grew up like I did. Eat three meals a day at home, loving parents, never heard my dad raise his voice to my mother. I thought every kid grew up like that. And then, you know, Timmy, uh, Christian brothers educated. Uh, dad was a policeman, tough guy, tough to the point where he and Tim, you know, almost came to blows several times. He did not have a smooth childhood. And I think that's what made him such a tough individual. Uh, three sports star at Christian Brothers. You can tell he had the leadership qualities from uh, being a linebacker and a catcher. So uh, it, it was unique that he and I bonded the way he we did. And I think that was probably because the more we got into baseball, the more we appreciated that each of us learned, you know, how to play the game the right way. I always consider myself a baseball player that just happened to be a pitcher. And uh, so Tim and I, I think, connected from that, uh, from that standpoint. But, uh, you know, I, I think uh, just Knowing Tim, uh, as we grew in our relationship, uh, one of the one of the things we loved to do was those are things that thing of the past now. But piano bars, we'd love to go in there and sing songs, sing Frank Sinatra songs, <laughs> and you know, little things like that where we spent time together. So, what was your go-to? Did you guys have a go-to, and who played the piano out of the two of you? Well, the, uh, neither one of us played the piano, but I was asking Bob Costas this morning because Bob has such a great memory. I haven't heard from him yet, but the piano player at the Regency Hotel in New York, uh, and Tim stayed there when he was doing Mets games. I stayed there when I was doing Yankee games in 1986, and we would meet occasionally downstairs there, and then we would head right over to the piano player. What we liked about it is he would give us the words ahead of time. So we could begin to sing the Sinatra songs yeah. and get the, get the words right. So uh, you know, those are the things thing of the past now. But that actually, Mickey Mantle used to hang out there and sing sing songs as uh, as well. So uh, uh, you know, that's it carried beyond just the baseball field off the field. We he was a bridge player, I was a bridge player. We had uh, at one time with the Phillies, we had eight bridge players on one team. Bridge for those that don't know it is a is a card game that's uh, unlike any other where uh, there's a lot of strategy and thinking involved and that fit right in with Tim's personality. Yeah. I bet you a pitcher catcher combo would be dangerous in that if they learned how to read each other the right way. Yeah. I, I always wished, you know, when, uh, when I got the backup job with CBS and Tim was the lead analyst, he was going to work with Brent Musburger. I was going to work, with Jack Buck. And then because of a contract dispute, uh, Brett, Brett was dismissed actually just before opening day. So Jack Buck moved up to the uh, top top play-by-play guy. And I worked with uh, Dick Stockton, who's taught me so much about the business. But when we did auditions uh, prior to CBS getting the rights, uh, Tim and I did a few innings together and it was so cool. But I think at that time, networks wanted a pure play-by-play person and then a pure analyst. And uh, I would love to have done uh, games together with Tim. 
Uh, I think that would have been a lot of fun for us. I think it would have been a lot of fun for the audience. I mentioned Brent Musburger. Now, here's a here's a unique story, unique part of Tim's and Brent's baseball life. Tim's first game as a catcher was for Keokuk, Iowa, and that was a farm club of the Cardinals. And the home plate umpire was Brent Musburger because he went to umpire school and wanted to be a big league umpire. So, I didn't know that. Yeah, so there they are in, in the late 50s in Keokuk, Iowa, and later they become TV stars at CBS. Wow, that's that's uh, I never knew that about him. I wonder how many people did in the audience. With with um, Tim, you, you mentioned him being, you know, some, some strong character traits that drew him to you and that he grew up in a different environment than you did. Where did he grow up? What was his you, you, uh, Memphis, country? Yeah, Memphis, Tennessee, which is where his uh, service is going to be this week. And it's where I went to see him last week. I uh, went to Christian Brothers Academy. He said without the training in Christian Brothers, he might have been in jail. You know, he needed that kind of tough love that he got there. He was a three-sport star. And and being back in Memphis and meeting some of the local people, you know, you, you really realize what a, what a standout athlete he was. Uh, for the city of Memphis back in the in the fifties, yeah, and it's it's uh, it's great that the relationship that you guys developed went across those three mediums. Very few people can account for one of those, albeit a friend or a colleague, as a broadcaster and also as a as a player and a teammate. How did when when you go across those three mediums, and you can start anywhere? I know we started with the the friend side of it, which is the most important. Did those character traits carry over to the other two mediums as well? And kind of in what capacity? You mean his his toughness and his... Yeah, his toughness, his, and honesty, his... No uh, question. No question. He was fearless as an announcer. Uh, first of all, I'll tell you where I first saw Tim, and I heard about him, but we were both uh, on the All-Star teams in 1966, which was in St. Louis, I had pitched a couple innings for the American League, and Tim came up in the 10th inning and got a leadoff single in the National League, beat us 2-1. Uh, to one. That was kind of an early indication of, of what kind of player Tim was because he is rare in that he walked many more times than he struck out. He was a guy that could handle the bat, uh, and I'll get into some of his uh, accolades as a player. But, yeah, that personality, I think – whether it was in the clubhouse or in the broadcast booth, uh, if you were looking for somebody to sympathize with your, you were being wronged in some way. Now, Tim would be quick to say, I don't agree with that. Yeah, I don't agree with that. You're not right about that. And you could be his closest friend. And he would say that and you would accept it because you knew it was true and he was so honest. And I think that's what made him a great broadcaster. You know, he he literally changed the way analysts work on TV. Uh, to delve into that for a minute, you go back to when I was a kid, it was Pee Wee Reese and Dizzy Dean, game of the week, because the only game you saw. And then Joe Garagiola came along, and he was a storyteller with a lot of stories about Yogi Berra. And then Tony Kubek, who gave me a nice call last week when he'd heard about Tim. And uh, Tony really was... Uh, before he became an analyst, was sort of a human interest uh, interview the fans in the stands. But I think Tim was the first guy who became very outspoken 
about what he saw on the field. And as I learned from Tim, he, he'd always, he taught me a lot as a, as a broadcaster, because he went in the business before I did. He said, if you're honest and objective, and if you say something that you think might have annoyed a player, make sure you're in the clubhouse the next day to see him. And Tim always did that. And I followed this, the same uh, model that, uh, that he did. And I, examples of that will be our good friend, Mike Schmidt, who uh, had some nice things to say about his relationship with Timmy. And Tim broke in doing uh, Phillies games uh, in the early 80s. And Schmitty hit a ball to the outfield and broke into his home run trot. And we have a button in the booth called the talkback button. So you hit that and you can get the producer to, to show what went on on the field just before the play happened. So they did a replay of Mike kind of trotting down first base. So Tim said, uh, Mike should have been on second base. He didn't run hard to first. Uh, the next day, <laughs> Schmidt, saw Timmy said, hey, uh, you kind of criticize. Or usually players would say ripped. That's not ripped at all. <laughs> but no. you say, hey, you, you criticize. said, Schmidt, I understand. You're a home run hitter. And when you hit the ball, by the sound of the bat hitting the ball, you think it's a home run. So you break into your trot. But that didn't. And you should have been on second. And Mike accepted that as as players would because they knew Tim was being honest. So that was one of the things that he brought to the, I think to the broadcast booth that had not been heard before by viewers. Very rare nowadays where unfortunately our broadcasters have become glorified cheerleaders. And I applaud you for maintaining that stance of calling it like you see it and telling the fans what they're seeing and breaking down the game for your tenure as an analyst and broadcaster, we need more guys like you and, and Tim in the game, in the booths right now to, to keep the game honest, I think. Well, that's kind of you to say that. And I, I credit Tim for that because uh, I had a chance to work in the New York market and that was a market where you had to be objective. They didn't want any homers. I interviewed actually for the Cubs job in, uh, in 1987 and uh, WGN, uh, they had a, a personality named Wally Phillips who was really promoting me as uh, being a part of the Cubs broadcast crew. And and the man that was doing the hiring said, "Do you have a? Would you have a problem rooting for the home team?" And I said, "Yes, I would." I said, "I I, I got into the business doing college games where I was not aligned with one team." Um, if you're, the team you're working for, if they win all their games, makes your job easier. But I don't work for the PR department. I don't work for the player. I work for the viewer. And that's what Timmy taught me. And I think uh, fans appreciate that, particularly in a market like New York. Yeah. Outside of the, the Mike Schmidt conversation, are there any others that Tim may, maybe ruffled feathers and had interaction, good, bad, or different with players? Oh, he's had some. I know he had... Uh, he had a session with Jim Jim Leland, you know, wherever Timmy was involved, he probably had a, a situation where he ruffled some feathers. I'm going to mention one, and I mentioned it on Facebook because uh, his daughter Kathy and I, uh, we were the only two in the room after Tim had passed, and we were waiting for the next step to happen. And uh, and I said to Kathy, uh, your dad didn't leave much on the table. And she said, he didn't leave anything on the table. And I said, well, he left one thing on the table. And it, it always came up is when he was wired up and with a mic in his hand 
and Deion Sanders pulled that cowardly act of throwing a bucket of water on him. And, yes, uh, I remember that. And that's been well publicized. And Tim, when he finished the interview, went around the clubhouse looking for Dion, and Dion was nowhere to be found. <laughs> I, I think to this day, and I, I certainly would have put my money on Tim because he knew how to use his fists, that uh, he never was able to get face-to-face with Dion, or I don't think Dion ever offered any kind of apology. But that was, uh, that was an act that was just uh, terrible for uh, a grown man to do what he did to Tim, you know, uh, without Tim being able to defend himself. So gives you an idea. He had made a comment about how he didn't think it was right for Dion to be playing baseball and football and then leaving his team that was fighting for a pennant. And I would say most of us at players would agree with that. The things that he pointed out that had never been pointed out, and I learned that from sitting next to him on the bench in Philadelphia when we were teammates with the Phillies, uh, the, the outfielder in the opposite field uh, usually plays far deeper than he should. So Tim was pointing that out to me one day. He said, you know, a left-hand hitter hits the ball on the end of the bat and it goes to the opposite field. It has that side spin that takes it away from the outfielder and it doesn't go as far. So outfielders are playing too deep. And I said, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because when I was pitching for Minnesota, I would tell Bob Allison, our right fielder, I said, Bob, now play shallow on these guys, because on these right-hand hitters, because if they hit it to the opposite field, they're not going to have as much, you know, authority uh, to, to the ball, and they're not going to hit it as hard. And so playing shallow takes away those little blue pits. I always say if, it hit, if they hit it over your head, it's my fault. Well, Tim was pointing that out a great deal. Uh, say there was a man on second, and the hitter got a, a single, and here comes the runner scoring. It's, it's a habit that the, the batter slash runner, as he rounded first, would look in toward home and see what was happening at the play at home. And as a result, he didn't go into second base. And the, the outfielder would miss the cutoff man, and he'd look at me and say, he should have been on second. Yeah. So little, little things like that that Tim was watching away from the ball, I think that made him uh, the great broadcaster that he was. Would His skill set would obviously – sounds like it would translate to the managerial position. Did you ever have conversations with him about why broadcasting and not coaching? Oh, I think he was offered interviews before for broadcasting. I think he could have been a general manager. Uh, I just think, you know, when, when we get into broadcasting, as Jack Buck told me back in the 80s when he, I was actually doing uh, reports for David Hartman in Good Morning America, and uh, Jack said, I heard you might be getting into this business. And I said, I'm, I'm thinking about it. I don't know uh, if I'll be any good at it. And he called me off to the side. He said, let me tell you something. And I thought he was going to give me some sage advice. And he said, uh, don't ever tell anybody how easy it is. Just cash the checks and smile. <laughs> and I, I think that's why Tim wanted to continue to broadcast uh, games and not get you know on the field where he had all the pressures of what managers and general managers go through. Yeah. But it sounds like he saw the game the way you would from the bench or from behind the plate, like he was as a catcher. Yeah. I think that's why you see catchers become uh, uh, managers and you see uh, a catcher like Tim become a great analyst because you, you see the game from a perspective that nobody else on the field does. And, uh, and, and that, that further, 
I think, added to the fact that Tim could be a good analyst because of what his position was as a player. You know, just touching on a player uh, for a moment, uh, a lot of fans may not realize what a what a really good player Tim was. You know, he he finished second in the MVP race in 1967. The Cardinals had a great run there in the 60s when he was a regular catcher. They won the series in 64, 67. They got beaten seven games in 68. But uh, it was uh, Orlando Cepeda who was the MVP and the batting champion in 67, and Tim was second. Tim was actually hitting uh, neck and neck with uh, Cha-Cha, they called him, Orlando Cepeda. And then I think because of the wear and tear that a catcher endures, he, he fell off and hit 295. But uh, I think he led the league in triples that year. And uh, you know what a heartwarming conversation he had. I was so honored uh, that Tim came to my induction uh, last year at Cooperstown. And I knew he wasn't in good health, but he said, I'm going to be there. And I was so honored that he was. And uh, when he asked his friend, some I think it was his daughter Kathy said, "Is there anybody else that you'd like to let you'd like to talk to?" And he said, "I heard Orlando Cepeda's here." And so, sure enough, in the hotel, Orlando was visiting with Tony Oliva and some other uh, Hall of Fame guests that were there. And he and uh, Cha Cha had not seen each other in a long time, and so they talked for about fifteen twenty minutes about that year in '67 when they finished one two in the batting race and one two in the uh, MVP race so that was a that was a warm moment for him to to be able to share that with uh, Orlando yeah. and he if I remember right he broke into the bigs I'm talking about Tim McCarver now when he was just a baby was he not 17 he signed when he was 17 uh, and he went out to the minor leagues and then he got called up briefly I believe in 1916 then went back down to the minor leagues, and he really became uh, the uh, the Cardinals' regular catcher, I think, in, in 62. Uh, but yeah, he came up very young, signed right out of high school. And in fact, when he signed, uh, some of the scouts that had seen him and seen him play for a little bit professionally thought, uh, and this is a name that you'd have to be an old-time fan to to recognize, but they thought that he reminded them of the late Mickey Cochran, who went into the Hall of Fame in 1947. And Mickey Cochran was a famous enough player that Mickey Mantle's dad actually named Mickey after Mickey Cochran. He was a 300 hitter and a Hall of Fame player, and they kind of likened Tim's aggressive style to the way Mickey Cochran played the game, which as a catcher then was probably the ultimate compliment. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a heck of a tag to put on a young kid, Mickey Cochran. And even even uh, Tim's high school, Christian Brothers in Memphis, he wasn't the first major leaguer that they came through from that that area, that, that disciplined little school. They, they put in Ray Crone and, and Don Leppert as well. And Ray Crone was actually on, on one of our shows earlier um, in the year. So that, that little school in Memphis has some productivity out of it. Tim Tim was the third person to come out of there. I did not realize that. I know that the other big league player that, that came along in Tim's era was Phil Gagliano, who was an infielder. He didn't have the successful career Tim did, but I didn't realize the other two. But yeah, Tim gives a lot of credit to, uh, to being schooled at the Christian Brothers uh, Academy. I think, uh, you know, that's where his toughness was sort of uh, kind of challenged in that he he kept it under control, <laughs> but uh, uh, 
we laugh so often about, uh, you know, Timmy's, Timmy's attitude and his knowledge, you know, his IQ, his baseball IQ, like Pete Rose, who couldn't run, uh, didn't have a strong arm, didn't have any power, didn't have any range, but he's a great baseball player. Why? He had a great baseball IQ. He could anticipate and react and use his intuitive skills. And Timmy was like that um, as a catcher. Uh, I'll give you a, a up close and personal example. Uh, I was not, uh, I did not have good individual years when I was with the Phillies, when I was his teammate. Those are the best teams I ever played. I won 100 games, I think, every year. And, uh, and yet we, we couldn't get past the Reds or the Dodgers to get to the World Series. Uh, but I, I, I think that uh, it was the spring of 78, and I'd come off the worst year personally I'd ever had. And I think Danny Ozark, who was our manager, would have loved an opportunity to get rid of me and give one of his young kids a chance. So they were giving me every opportunity in spring training to prove that I still belonged. And so we're, uh, my start was coming up against the Cincinnati Reds, and Tim was in the lineup to catch. And so we talked before the game, and he said, I know in the American League, uh, you pitch left-handers outside because we didn't play on any AstroTurf in the American League. So left-hand hitters wanted to pull the ball. They pulled that front foot off, and they wanted to pull it down the right field line. They didn't go the opposite field very well, very much. Uh, And Tim said, in the National League, we have all those turf fields. So guys love to hit the ball the other way off the ground. The National League, of course, had all that speed then. They had Joe Morgan, Maury Wills, Lou Brock, all the all the base stealers were in the National League. So that game, he said, we're going to pitch all these left-hand hitters. And I think they had Ken Griffey's dad. Ken Griffey was there. Joe Morgan, Cesar uh, Geronimo. I think they may have had another left-hand hitter in the lineup. And so all I did was pound fastballs inside to the left-hand hitters, what fastball I had left. And the end result is I pitched uh, six scoreless innings and uh, ended up making the team and hanging in there for another year with the Phillies and subsequently pitched uh, five more years. And I really think that uh, that one single game in spring training was the difference between making the team and probably having them put me on waivers or whatever. So I, I give Tim a lot of credit for that. Isn't that the way in baseball, though, right? You're every, if you keep that little fear and arrogance, as they call it, where you're always one one good game from moving forward and maybe one bad game from getting a train ticket or a bus ticket home. Yeah, I mean, every, you know, in, in my early years at spring training, even though I had established myself, I always tried to go to spring training with the, the thought in mind that I have to make the team. But that year, it was real. I mean, I, my performance in spring training, I always, I always thought they never even, they shouldn't keep stats in spring training. What does it mean? But in cases like that, it was a very meaningful game for me. And, and you're right, you live, with that, uh, you live with that kind of fear that I have to do well today. You know, I don't have anything, I can't take anything for granted. And uh, that spring was particularly true for me. Yeah, there aren't too many other vocations in the world where that's the case uh, day in and day out where you're under a microscope like that. As I was looking at Tim's career, I mean, you guys connect in so many different ways. Obviously, we mentioned the friendship as a player and as a broadcaster. But in terms of what we don't see nowadays, that longevity, that durability, you two were two of the 15 players 
in the history of the game to play across four more decades. Did you realize that? Oh, I, I knew that. The Phillies brought Timmy, uh, they made him active in 1980 to accomplish that. But what was, uh, what was much more impressive about Tim doing it was as a catcher. I mean, he did play a little first base, but uh, when you look at the toll, uh, and I could tell that in Timmy's last years here, I mean, he was having trouble walking, his knees were were beat up. And I think, you know, for a catcher to do that over a period of time is is much more impressive than uh, than a left-hand pitcher because, you know, we can, we can hang on if we can walk and chew gum and throw a occasional strike and get a left-hand hitter out. Why, uh, as in my case, I pitched till I was 44, but for Tim to catch and, uh, and stay around that long was quite an accomplishment. Yeah. What was his secret? How did he stay so healthy? Well, I think first of all, uh, by today's standards, he was not a big person physically. Tim was like six feet, 175. You know, he, he wasn't like the guys today, six, two that are two and a quarter. And you can imagine how much tougher it is on them to squat down pitch after pitch, uh, in that catching position. So, uh, and, and I think Tim, I think part of it was the mental toughness. I mean, you didn't take days off back then. You, you couldn't come in and say, you know, my knees are killing me, Dad. I think I need a day off. Well, okay, we'll start uh, – Johnny Romano was the backup catcher one day. We'll start Johnny Romano. Well, if he does well, uh, Tim might not get back in there for a while. So that was the attitude I think that he had and that I, I believe all of us had is that you had to go to the post uh, to be able to keep your job, and uh, Tim was the epitome of doing that. Yeah. Did he ever, or do, are you aware of any conversations that he ever had with catchers to try to inject them with that toughness? Because our catchers today, I love I love the catching side of the game. My son is a catcher. I talk about it on the air all the time. And I mean, 120 games is a lot for a guy to catch nowadays. Yeah, I, I think in general today, uh, and I don't mean this as a criticism of the players, it's just the way things are today with other interests that they have there, uh, there are very few players that look back at those of us that played and ask us how we did things like I did from Warren Spahn, Robin Roberts, Whitey Ford. I think Tim had, uh, Hal Smith. I'm trying to think of a couple other catchers that the Cardinals had there that he, he learned from But very, I'll tell you a cute little story. And Charlie Blackman knows this, and Tim went ahead and told it on TV. So Tim's doing the games for the Cardinals near the end of his announcing career, and uh, he loved Charlie Blackman with the Rockies. And he went up to Charlie behind the cage. He said, man, I really love the way you play the game. And Charlie said, thank you. And then uh, he said, what are you doing here? He said, well, I, I, uh, I'm announcing the games for the Cardinals. Oh, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he said, uh, did you play he said, yeah, I, I, play, I played for the Cardinals for a while. Were you ever in any World Series? Yeah, well, Tim hit 478 in the 64 World Series. And it didn't bother Tim's ego. He was just kind of chuckling about it. So he said to Charlie, do you mind if I tell this story on the air? And he did it. But that's an, that's an indication of how the modern players, you know, they're, they're wrapped up in what they're doing. They have other interests. And, and here's, a, you know, a guy who was a – star player for years, but Charlie had no idea that he even played. And that's kind of the norm these days. Yeah. And and why is that? Because I, again, I'm, I'm probably in between those two age brackets. And I remember growing up 
craving stories about the game and, and loving the history of it. And as a former professional player, seeking out, as you mentioned, seeking out the guys that did it before me so that I could maybe skip some steps in terms of bumps and bruises along the way. What, yeah, well, nowadays? Yeah, good for you because I, Eddie Lopat was my pitching coach in 1961. And he said to me, kid, if you don't hurt your arm, I think you're going to pitch for a long time. And I said, why do you say that? And he said, because you're curious. I've been watching you. You ask questions, which I did. I went out of my way to seek out Warren Spahn when we played an exhibition game. And uh, Robin Roberts, when I got a chance to cross paths with him, and Whitey Ford. And so I think that's what, uh, that's what Tim did back, you know, in those days. But I think today there's so much more science involved. Uh, you know, they've taught catchers how to position themselves differently. They have all the scientific data. So a player does not have to be as curious to go to another player. When I coached for Pete in 1985, I was pitching coach, and we had a left-hand pitcher named Tommy Browning. Tommy, unfortunately, passed away this past year. But he won 20 games as a rookie uh, in 1985. That was the first rookie to do that in over 30 years. And Tommy didn't throw hard. I don't think he ever felt hit 90. And he had a little screwball. So when we played the Dodgers, Ron Paranoski was their pitching coach. And Ron was a teammate of mine in Minnesota. So I said to Perry, uh, could I bring Tommy over to talk to Fernando Valenzuela tomorrow, just get an idea of how he throws his screwball? Because Fernando had a great one. And so we did things like that. But I don't think that that would happen today at all. I think they'd just go to the video uh, they have made great strides in uh, in mechanics, you know, for pitchers uh, to, to improve their mechanics. I don't know if it's preventing any injuries because, uh, you know, the arm wasn't designed to throw as hard as you can uh, at a young age the way they are right now. But uh, as you did, seeking out other players, that was the option we had. Uh, we didn't have any of this other scientific data. I'm kind of glad we didn't have a lot of it. And so you sought out those that did it before you did to uh, to find out how, particularly if they were successful, how uh, how they did things. Yeah, you you're when you talk about Tim, I love hearing about the friendship and the the people that we have on the the podcast network, uh, yourself, and then even some of the other shows. There's a common thread with that generation of baseball where relationships is always talked about. Has science detached us from that a little bit with baseball where we just, like you said, we don't seek it out anymore because we don't need it. And um, I fear, I fear that, that kind of missing in baseball and maybe even having a generation lose that quality that I love. I, I love hearing the stories of the relationships that like you and Tim have and, and all the guys that we have on the show. Yeah. Um, has science, has science taken, I mean, we don't have to. You know, I, I don't know. I, I think one of the things where they have built relationships uh, is through agents and through free agency and trades that, you know, Tim was a catcher for the Cardinals uh, almost the entire decade of the 60s. I was a pitcher for the Twins the entire decade of the 60s. Uh, players change uniforms a lot. And I, I, I think because of that, they're, they're friends. Now you'll see a guy slide into say, second base and get up and tap the shortstop 
on the backside. Hey, how you doing? Well, they probably have the same agent. Those kind of relationships. We didn't build those kind of relationships. Then, I mean, you you figured out ways to dislike the guys on the other team, not personally, but because he had a different uniform on. So, uh, yeah, I think the relationships we you know we formed were you know were becoming just teammates and spending time together over six months time. Tim and I were just teammates for three years, but then as we got into uh, announcing and phone calls, why we, you know, we just connected every year. Like uh, I mentioned, we, we only saw each other in person uh, probably four times a year, but we'd have dinner together. We'd get on the phone and all of a sudden you'd look and your number down on your phone said an hour and five minutes. We'd be talking about the way the game was played or, a game that we announced uh, recently and some of the things that happened. I don't know that that happens quite as much anymore today as it did then. Yeah. yeah I know he did uh, 20, was it 24 World Series games with Fox and probably yeah. over two dozen All-Star games. I mean, you guys were, you guys are and were great in your own right and in your own way with analyzing games, but how were you, how were you different how, and how were you the same? Well, I don't think I was as fearless or as brutally honest as Tim could be. I mean, I didn't I didn't have a problem if a player, you know, wasn't doing anything or uh, right or putting forth the effort. Uh, you made gentle criticism that I think Timmy's might have come off sometimes as being harsh. But, uh, yeah, I, I think I was more uh, passive, probably mild-mannered than that was our personality, and you, you don't change your personality. But I learned – a lot from Tim because we would we would sit on the uh, bench in Philadelphia and I I had no idea that I was going to go into broadcasting but I I think Timmy kind of had that in the back of his mind he started doing uh, Phillies games a little bit in uh, 1980 and then went back in uniform then of course got the Mets job and uh, in New York you know you have to be on top of things and and be objective and I think the uh, the Mets people saw that immediately, and uh, so Tim was was ahead of the curve. And uh, I like to think that I was not like Tim as much as I learned from Tim and used my own personality. Yeah. What were some of the things you learned from him? Well, I think the things we talked about were, uh, you know, the outfielder playing too shallow. Yeah. Uh, I learned, I learned from John Madden, I should say that. I learned from John Madden not to keep a lot of notes, but just watch the game. And I think that's what Tim was was uh, was able to do. I'll give you a little unique thing that he did uh, as a player, and I think it helped him as a broadcaster too. When he was catching, you know, he caught two of the greatest pitchers of all time, Bob Gibson and Steve Carlton. And uh, when Lefty was in his heyday in Philadelphia, Lefty, Steve had – uh, you know, one of the he was known for his great slider. Uh, it was a hard breaking ball that right hand hitters had a hard time laying off from uh, because it would break down and in the dirt. So before the game, Tim, when they stood around home plate for the national anthem, he would tell the first base umpire, now be alert for check swings because you're going to see a lot of them. And so he immediately put the thought in mind of the first base umpire because lefty would get a right-hand hitter, two strikes, and then that hitter would try to check his swing. And I think by Tim making that first base umpire alert to it, you, you'd get a lot of call strikes on that pitch. Little inside things that I don't think anybody else did the way the way Tim did. Yeah, and those are the things that made him a 
great yeah. catcher, great analyst. I remember a quote, and I thought he was as you know as as direct and as as gruff as as he may have been perceived. I always found him engaging. I grew up in New York during the time he was broadcasting with the Mets, and grew up watching. He had he had three choices: the Mets, the Yankees, or on you know one of the down channels on the push button. TV, you could get the Red Sox game, which I never watched. Um, but uh, the, the uh, I remember him making a comment about catching Gibson and Carlton, and somebody asked him to can, can you give a interesting tidbit about Gibson? And it was his counterpart during a rain delay, and he said, uh, you know, he was the luckiest pitcher I ever caught. He always seemed to pitch when the other team didn't score runs. And it, yeah, well, of course, Timmy's Timmy's great quote with Gibby is, uh, and he didn't know Bob that well. I mean, they talk about like brothers. There are a lot of people like I've relayed today that just felt they were so close to Tim. He was that kind of a person. But uh, early on, a manager would would kind of move his fingers up and down with his thumb, like uh, like a duck, you know, uh, with a duck bill, and that meant go out to the mound and talk to the pitcher. And uh, so Timmy started trotting out to uh, to talk to Gibby, and he got about 10 feet away. And, and Gibby said, what are you doing out here, white boy? The only thing you know about pitching, it's hard to hit. Just get back behind the plate. And uh, so he learned that he learned that real uh, early in his career to not go out to the mound and talk to Bob Gibson. But, uh, uh, yeah, he, uh, he, he learned, uh, I think, to, to handle Gibby and Steve. You know, what he did with Steve was remarkable because uh, uh, Lefty didn't have to do any thinking uh, about what pitch to throw because he just put the game completely in Tim's hands. That's a great relationship to have. And, and those, you know, younger in our audience that don't know Tim as a player, lefty hitter, correct? Nice, yes. nice lefty stroke. And as you mentioned, his stature, he wasn't that prototypical catcher that we see nowadays in terms of size. And he, he had a, uh, and I don't know if it was one season or over the course of his career, but he had a, a knack for hitting that triple, huh? He led the league in triples with 13. Of course, St. Louis was a big ballpark, but uh, Timmy, as is true with a lot of catchers, not all, but Timmy was a great base runner, even though he didn't have great, you know, he wasn't blessed with speed. Pete Rose was a great base runner. Johnny Bench was a great base runner. He stole, I think Johnny Bench stole third base 10 times one year. So Tim had had those intuitive skills, uh, anticipation where, uh, and, and he always got a good jump. As soon as he hit the ball, he was out of you know running. He didn't break into a home run trot. He didn't hit that many home runs. But yeah, he had a lot of triples. And uh, I mentioned he walked more than he struck out. When you talked about a hitter like Timmy, if you were pitching against him that day, one of the expressions that would probably come up is he can handle a bat. Yeah. Well, if a man was on second, nobody out, he's going to he's going to pull the ball, get the runner over to second base. Uh, and he's going to be able to take the ball to left field. You know, when the pitcher's pitching him outside, he can handle a bat. Yeah. And he I mean, hit over 270 for his career. That's very good. That's actually probably lead the league in hitting now, hitting 270 the way the batting. Right. Yeah. 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 Good, good on base percentage, very good slugging over 1500 hits. And as we mentioned that. That durability is just amazing. And I know he played a handful of games at, you know, first and in the outfield, but 80, 85% of his games were behind the dish. Right. Well, David, it's been great to be able to 
you know, to kind of give my perspective and tribute to Tim as a, as a person and a player and a broadcaster, because uh, he meant so much to me and he meant so much to so many. I mean, when I've read the tributes from different players of all eras and what they learned from Tim and how engaging he was, because he, he always, uh, he was always down on the field. You know, he was always on the field, ready to meet players, whether he said something critical the night before. So I think those, those comments came, you know, came back when I read all the tributes, uh, uh, about Tim is uh, how how he gained the trust I think of uh, of the players because of that. Yeah, that, that being a catcher is a way of life, and yeah. uh, sounds like he he continued that. Now he what he was a as people should know he's a Hall of Fame broadcaster. Yeah, following his career, would you be able to and not to not to share names or anything if you don't feel comfortable? Could you could you share some generalities anyway of some of the things people said about him? Well, I just I just read where uh, uh, I think it was Daniel Descalzo. Timmy kept mispronouncing his name, and he uh, and he wrote, yeah, and he wrote a little he wrote a little note about his grandmother was upset. So so Tim went to Daniel and got the right pronunciation. And then whenever he would see Dan after, he said, "How's your grandmother doing?" He would say hi to, to Daniel's grandmother on the broadcast. Oh, that's uh, nice. Uh, but yeah, I think just uh, uh, things like that. You know, he he was, as I mentioned, the easiest way to size Tim up was he is the most honest, trustworthy, and loyal friend I've ever known. And if he made a mistake, like he did with pronouncing a name, he would be the first to admit, uh, I did it wrong, I'm going to make it right. And uh, that's the kind of man of integrity he was. No, it, it sounds like you got to experience that in a number of different capacities and to have a relationship like that. Uh, and I don't use this word often, but in this time of sorrow, consider yourself blessed. I mean, to have that type of relationship over such a period of time in a number of different capacities, I doubt highly that there's another person outside his family that knows Tim McCarver, um, 360 degrees like you do. You know, it's nice of you to mention that because I did get a couple of, uh, uh, comments. For example, my, my daughter passed away, two years ago, and her close friend, Laura, uh, was talking about how blessed she was to be Jill's friend and vice versa. And she mentioned to me, how how fortunate were you to be his friend for 47 years? And uh, so what you mentioned there is exactly true. I think it was, and that's why I think I'm so comfortable talking about him. And uh, I was so honored that I could get there to, to kind of hold his hand and say goodbye. You know, the hospice nurses say that the hearing sense is the last thing to go. So even though, you know, I'm holding his hand, talking to him like we were in the clubhouse, and I'm just hoping that and trusting that he hears something. So I remember I had, Kathy was in the background, his daughter, and she got a kick out of this. I was, I was holding his fingers and rolling them around for some reason. I said, hey, Tim, now when you get up there, the sides are the same. One's a fastball, two's a curve. <laughs> you know, hoping that he heard but uh, those were the kind of moments that uh, were so bittersweet to be able to to be able to be there like that. Yeah, I was going to ask you what were some of the things you were you were sharing with him. But uh, yeah, I just just in general, like you know how much I loved him and how much uh, you know it was an honor to be his friend and 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 uh, talk the way we talked baseball over the last forty years and had 
respect and love for one another just in, in general yeah I, I i try to you know when, I, when i'm listening to you to talk about them i think all of our audience will wish they can have at least one relationship close to that and you know it's it, it seems like you had radical truth and radical transparency with him and you got the chance to experience meaningful work and a meaningful relationship and that's that's a lifetime right there um, well, it sure is. I'm uh, very blessed to have had Tim McCarver as a great friend. Yeah. Now, did you apologize for shaking him off at some point in time in your career? You never shook him off, did you? I don't, you know, I unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to pitch to oh, Tim yeah. during games a lot. You know, he caught lefty and and that was about it. And when you caught lefty, you usually caught all nine innings because that's what lefty did. He pitched yeah. nine innings. So I would pitch to Tim a little bit in spring training, but I never really had the the privilege of, uh, of pitching to him a lot as a battery mate. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I appreciate you being so open with, with the, the topic today. We've been talking about Tim for almost an hour and we could probably talk more and more. Um, in, in some of your, I want to go to the pitcher catcher relationship. Um, as we kind of close out, what were some tidbits he gave you from that standpoint? I know he influenced you as a broadcaster and an analyst and obviously as a friend, any influences as a catcher that he gave you tidbits? Uh, well, I, I think what Tim's strength was, you know, now we see countless trips to the mound and both by coaches and by catchers. And I think uh, those of us that pitched in, in our era, like Gibby told him, get back behind the plate. Catchers then did not, if they came to the mound, it was really something important. And the only thing Tim would do uh as he said, and he didn't say this in my particular case, but we were talking about what a catcher should do behind the plate in, in trying to help his pitcher. Uh, he would say, if I noticed that his arm angle was dropping, for example, he said, I would trot out about two-thirds of the way and look at the pitcher and say, I don't know anything about pitching, but I'll tell you that your arm angle, the last few pitches, is dropped way down little things like that, that, and then he'd run back behind the plate. Didn't, you know, kept it simple. Uh, and I just think we both shared the, we shared the thought that the only two players that know what pitch you should throw to the hitter are the pitcher and the catcher. And I've experienced that in the broadcast booth where my partner, you know, would innocently say, well, what pitch would you throw him right now? And I'd say, I don't know, but if I was on the mound, I'd know. Yeah, uh, because I've been there the whole game. The catcher's been there the whole game. He knows what we've thrown him in the first at bat and the second at bat. So you have a feel for that there. And uh, so I think Tim was a was an expert at that. He a lot of catchers would call fastballs with a with a speedy runner on first because they wanted to be able to get the ball second base in time. Uh, Tim would never do that. He was just calling the pitch whatever the situation called for, whether it was a cat and, you know, Tim had a lot of injuries to his fingers and his hands. So his, his throwing arm, which never was his strength was, it was just not there near the end of his career, but his, uh, his value behind the plate was uh, unmatched. You know, he had uh, as good a catching IQ. I had the privilege of pitching to Earl Batty early in my career, who was helpful to me. And then Phil Roof, who, caught me in Minnesota for a while. And then Timmy, those, those three stand out as catchers with a, with a tremendous baseball IQ. And how important is that to a pitcher? 
Well, it's a trust factor. Um, you know, I remember one uh, one game pitching to uh, Willie Horton in Detroit, and Willie Horton was a lethal fastball hitter, and I did not have an overpowering fastball. Phil Roof was catching me. But I had faced Willie a couple, you know, times already, and I just got to that point. I think it was a 2-2 count. And in my mind, I said, I think I can get a fastball by him right now. And I looked down, and Phil's got the fastball sign. See, that's the kind of chemistry – that a pitcher and catcher wants because now you have that trust that he's thinking the same way I am. Yeah. And, and that's what Lefty and Tim had for years. And that was, they, they had some great years in Philadelphia when those two were at their peak, uh, NL, NL East or NL championships. And that was, that was a tough, tough division way back when, um, during that time, but certainly Tim and Steve had a great run, uh, during that tenure. Um, now you'll be heading, you'll be heading out. You said the service will be this coming week. Yeah, I, I won't. I told Kathy, unfortunately, I, I will not be, uh, at the service. I have some obligations to, uh, for the Minnesota twins. I'm going to spring training there. And Kathy fully understood that. I'm just glad that I was there when I was there, but, uh, uh, Steve will be there. And then a lot of the TV people, Steve Hurt, Steve Horn, I think Joe Buck will probably fly in. So there, I'm sure be representatives from the Cardinals, the Phillies, uh, TV networks, and the Hall of Fame uh, to attend his funeral mass on Thursday. Yeah. Is the family asking anything special during this time? Well, the uh, the two charities are the Memphis Redbird Fund, which I think is administered by the AAA team there, which uh, and, and also the Christian Brothers Sports, I think is Christian Brothers Forum. That goes for... Uh, baseball for uh, supporting baseball in the inner city. And then the Memphis Redbird Fund is supporting it uh, in the city of Memphis in general. Oh, great. So he continues to give back even in, even in yeah. his passing. Well, you know, at, at one time, the, the local ballpark, I think when I pitched there in the late 50s, I think, I don't know if it was Rickwood Field, but the old park in, Minis- in uh, Memphis, they named that Tim, MacArthur Sta- Tim McCarver Stadium. Oh, really? Yeah, there was a ballpark name for him. And then, of course, when sponsorship became uh, in vogue for naming these ballparks, then when Memphis built this fabulous new downtown AAA ballpark, now it's named probably after a bank or an insurance company or something. But for for years, it was Tim McCarver Ballpark. Yeah, that's a great tribute to him and the the life that he's led and as you mentioned way back in the beginning, two 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 guys from different upbringings, brought together by the threat of baseball. Yeah, uh, not just through being a player together, but player to broadcaster and friends, lifelong yeah. friends. So um, I envy you, Jim, in that regard. I, I do. Well, thank you. I'm uh, I'm very honored by it, and I and I mean that in, in all due respect and politeness. Um, I envy you that uh, that you were able to do that, but. It does, I don't, uh, I'm not surprised by it because the same traits that you spoke so highly in regards to Tim, you also exude those. So I think, uh, as, as you went through your playing career and your coaching career and your broadcasting career, I think you're seeing a lot of people in this time of, of sorrow, but also in, in your time now where you're not as heavily engaged in the game and you're indulging me once a week here on the podcast. I think you're seeing a lot of people appreciate what you brought to a lifetime of baseball too. So I hope you feel that. Well, thanks very much. I appreciate it. 
Yeah, and I, I, I've, I've enjoyed hearing about Tim, and I've written down about uh, a dozen or so questions that have to do with catching that I'm not going to bore our audience with today because they're selfish questions on my part that I'm going to pick your brain on after the show. But okay. uh, is there anything, anything in, in parting that you want to mention about Tim or the family or as we kind of? No, I, I, I think I've said it all. I don't think there's anything more uh, I can say about, you know, the, the three things that are the top prior, the top characteristics are his honesty, his loyalty and his, his trust. Yeah. And to our, I mean, to our audience, we're in 46 countries right now and we're very big in the homeschool market. Um, we've got families at home that are schooling their kids. I encourage all of them to take a look at Tim McCarver as a player, pull up some of the old broadcasts. He was with the Mets for, gosh, probably 16 plus years. I remember listening to him and um, encourage you just to appreciate what he brought to the game, not just as a player, but as a as a Hall of Fame broadcaster. And then you heard some some great comments today from Jim regarding Tim as an individual. So research that, put the science away, put the you know, use YouTube for good, not evil now. See what we can find on Tim McCarver. And Jim, thanks so for sharing today. That was very intimate. And I hope our audience appreciates just uh, how much you opened up today to share about your great friend and great teammate and great colleague. Well, thanks, Dave. I was honored to do it. And our audience, remember, please uh, go on and listen. Download first so we get credit for it. Subscribe to our podcast network and like it. It's all free. We're trying to build better baseball IQs. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Pester me with questions. I love writing, doing my morning question uh, to everybody here. And, and we look forward to talking to you, Jim, next week on our show. Thanks again. Thank you. Time went on trap talking baseball.